Father, we do pray uh, that you, by your Spirit, would abide with us right now, uh, that you would pour out your Spirit on us, that you would uh, give us ears to hear what you have to say in your Word, that you would cause us to delight in your Word, but most of all, to delight in your Son, Jesus. We pray that you would direct our hearts to you during this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. I charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Well, tonight, uh, as we've already said, we're going to be ordaining a man to gospel ministry. And if, you have, if you're visiting with us this evening, we are glad that you're here. Uh, but tonight is a, is a little bit different from what we normally do. Uh, and uh, in some sense tonight, I am especially preaching to the pastors in the room. As a result, it might feel a little like you've crashed a wedding where you don't know the bride and groom, or like you're reading someone else's mail. Uh, but if you're wondering, oh, then why am I here? There are many answers that we could give to that question, but let me mention just two. Uh, some of you are here because you love Josue and you want to support him. And of course, that's enough of a reason for being here tonight. But also, as you hear Paul's charge to pastors, let that stir you to pray for your pastor. Pray for Josue, pray for me. Uh, pray for pastors, you know, in other churches, we pastors desperately need your prayers. And maybe by the time I get done tonight, you'll understand why, <laughs> one way or another. Uh, we're looking at a passage from what is called the pastoral epistles or the pastoral letters. Paul writes three letters to pastors in the New Testament, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And these letters help lay out the New Testament model for ministry and the church, and Paul is writing to encourage a pastor in his pastoral work. And so we're listening in to Paul's encouragement. We're looking at 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8, which is really the conclusion to the body of this letter. And I bring this up because we need a, a little bit of context to understand what Paul is doing here. Paul in this letter is really setting up the next generation of pastors, the, the post-apostolic generation, that is the generation after the apostles, the ones who were the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. 
And Paul is setting this next generation up for their continued calling. And Paul himself, at this point, is in prison. He is in chains because of what he calls the testimony of our Lord, the good news, the gospel, the message of Jesus. You see, Paul has a very specific message which he shares everywhere he goes. Everywhere he goes, he preaches that Jesus is the Son of God, that he was crucified for sin, died, and was buried. But then he rose from the dead on the third day, ascended into heaven, and now sits at God's right hand, reigning as king. And Paul says Jesus is going to come again to judge the world on the last day. And he teaches that those who believe in this Jesus will have their sins forgiven and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now at this point, when Paul writes this letter, he had been preaching this message for about 30 years. He has faced constant opposition, and that has come to a head. He's in prison, and it is unlikely that he will ever get out. In fact, Paul expects to die for his faith, and history tells us that he did. And so Paul is living for the gospel and suffering for the gospel, and he now wants Timothy to do the same. Paul is passing the baton, as it were, to a younger generation of pastor. He knows his time is short, and he wants to prepare his protege, Timothy, for what is to come. In, in first, uh, 2 Timothy 3, Paul emphasizes that Timothy has known the scriptures from his youth and that they, the Bible, are able to make him wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. And that's because the scriptures, they, they lead us to salvation in Jesus because the scriptures are about Jesus from beginning to end. And, and then Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God, and Paul means by that the pastor, may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, Timothy has a job to do, and the scriptures, the scriptures which, which lead to salvation in Jesus, they are what will equip Timothy for that job. Again, Paul himself is moving on, and so he's pointing Timothy and us to what he and we must rely on from here on out, the God-breathed scriptures, which alone can make us wise for salvation. Now, it's in that context, the context of the gospel that Paul preached, the context of the opposition that Paul faced, the context of the scriptures that Paul commended, that we come to Paul's charge of Timothy beginning in 2 Timothy 4.1. And we're going to look at eight verses, and we'll break it down into three points. First, the challenge of gospel ministry, people with itching ears, that's verses three and four. Second, the call of gospel ministry, preach the word, it's verses two and five through seven. And third, the hope of gospel ministry, the crown of righteousness, and there we'll look at verses one and eight. You'll notice I'm starting in the middle of the passage, and I'm working my way out to the edges. First, the challenge of gospel ministry, people with itching ears. Uh, a, a few years ago, people began talking about echo chambers in social media. And an echo chamber is an environment where uh, you only encounter ideas that support your current beliefs. Uh, rather than being exposed to and challenged by ideas that differ from your own, you, you're simply reinforced in your pre-existing bias. Uh, now, a lot of research has been done, actually, on this idea over the past seven years or so, and much of it actually challenges the folk wisdom on echo chambers and social media. But 
I think what remains true, because intrinsic perhaps to who we are as human beings, is that we each seek out media that we individually find interesting. We go to what we like or what encourages us. Uh, For some, that may be monolithic ideas that support their current beliefs. Uh, For others, that may be diverse ideas that challenge their beliefs. Uh, For some, it it may uh, mean devouring the news. For others, it means consuming social media. Uh, Some people are political junkies. Some go straight to pure entertainment. But the principle that I'm highlighting is that we go to what stimulates us as individuals. And whatever that is, of course, in today's culture, it's ready at hand, right? Anything we want is there for the taking at any moment. Now, this all isn't wrong in and of itself, but there is a sinister side, uh, and it didn't start with TikTok or Twitter or even Facebook. Paul says in verse 3 of our text, the time is coming. This is not the first time Paul said something like this. He, in 1 Timothy 4.1, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. Or in 2 Timothy 3.1, he says, But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Some think Paul is talking about some time off in the future here, some dark days yet to come. But really, it's pretty clear. Paul is not talking about some far-off future. He is saying, Timothy... You need to be ready. This is coming just on the horizon. For Paul, the last days began with the the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost. The times that are coming are now. And so Paul says in verse 3, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. It's one thing to flip through the channels to find a show you want to watch. But what happens when that consumer mentality is brought into the church? What happens when you begin looking for a preacher whose message makes you feel good or who agrees with your political persuasion or affirms your self-image? Paul says there are people, some people at least, in the church whose standard is not sound teaching, but what scratches my itch, uh, what meets my need, what satisfies my desires. Paul says such people accumulate for themselves teachers. They are collectors and curators of of YouTube preachers and podcast teachers. Any day of the week, right, we can find a a preacher talking about the very topic we're interested in, saying the very thing we want him to say. And if we don't like it, we just turn it off and move on to the next one. Now, if our standard is actually sound teaching, that may not be so bad. Uh, But Paul says some will have itching ears. The, The New American Standard Bible translates it, wanting their ears tickled. There are people who love to hear about everything new and novel and interesting and strange and foreign and different, anything that will excite. We want schemes to get rich and boost our self-esteem and improve our sex life. Paul says such people will turn away from the truth, verse 4, and wander off into myths. See, what is important to them is not what is true, but what suits my needs, what scratches my itch. And the challenge for gospel ministry is this. If people have itching ears, if they want their ears tickled, if they just want the new or the edgy, if they are looking for a self-esteem boost or the politically charged, or if they just want the warm fuzzies, if that is what people want, they're not going to be interested in preaching. They're not interested in a God who will challenge and correct and disagree with them. They only want a God who basically looks just like them, one who will agree and affirm their pre-existing beliefs. And the temptation of the preacher is to give people what they want, 
to, to change, maybe subtly at first, to change the message to gain a hearing or to gain a crowd. Whenever a gospel preacher opens his mouth, there will always be people who want something else. And you've got to expect that as a gospel preacher. That is what Paul is saying. Some will want more of one thing. Some will want more of the opposite thing. The temptation will be to try to give people what they want. Even apart from people wanting the wrong things. Many Christians tend to have their pet doctrines, their pet causes, their pet concerns. And itching ears sometimes is just people want to hear you preach on their issue. So this is the the challenge, or at least one of the challenges. It's the challenge that Paul brings up here of gospel ministry. Not to give in to those who collect and curate preachers who want their particular itch scratched. Not to cater to a, a Christian fan base or niche theological trends. So point one, the challenge of gospel ministry. There will be people who want you to cater to their interests. But that's not your job. Which brings us to point two. Well, what is your job? Point two, the call of gospel ministry. Preach the word. In verse one, uh, Paul begins, I charge you. And we'll come back to the rest of that verse in a bit. But here is the first thing to notice. Paul is not giving Timothy a friendly reminder here. Uh, This is not pious advice. It's not a suggestion. It's not a recommendation. This is a solemn charge. This is serious. And that charge is verse two, preach the word. Paul wants Timothy to publicly announce the teaching of Scripture, to proclaim the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. He wants him to do that regardless of the situation, in season and out of season. Preaching is not like fishing or hunting or baseball, right? There's no season when it is time to preach the gospel and a different season when it is okay not to preach the gospel. Preaching the gospel is a year-round, all the time, every situation, activity. And Paul spells this out. He says, reprove, rebuke, exhort. There were people in Ephesus, that was Timothy's church, who were teaching lies, myths, falsehoods. And to preach truth, Timothy had to reprove them, to correct that false teaching. And if they refused to listen, he had to rebuke them. And if they did listen, he would exhort them. And the point is, Timothy's all-the-time teaching was to have teeth. It went somewhere. It wasn't theoretical. It wasn't pie in the sky. It wasn't an interesting theological lesson. He was reproving false teaching, rebuking bad behavior, and exhorting to godliness. And he was to do all this with with complete patience and teaching. Patience because sometimes we're slow, aren't we? Uh, Slow to learn, slow to change, slow to grow. And teaching because Timothy's reproof, rebuke, and exhortations were to be grounded in his doctrine. See, his sermons were not to be merely theological lessons, but they weren't to ignore theology either. Behavior is grounded in belief. Devotion is grounded in doctrine. The Christian life is grounded in the Christian faith. How we live is grounded in what we think. And ultimately, godliness must be grounded in the gospel. And so Timothy is to preach the word. But that's not all. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, Paul continues, as for you, after warning about people's itching ears, Paul says this, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. The task of Timothy uh, is to preach the word, but to that end, Paul gives four more exhortations. There are nine exhortations in this passage to Timothy. Four more. First, Paul says, be sober-minded. 
And this is not about whether Timothy has a beer now and then. It is about how Timothy thinks. Every time this word is used in the New Testament, it is in the context of Christ's return. One, I'll just give you one example. 1 Timothy 5, Paul says, The day of the Lord uh, it will come like a thief in the night. So then, be sober. And notice that's the context here as well. Verse 1, Christ is to judge the living and the dead, and, and Paul's charge to Timothy is in light of Christ's appearing, that is, Christ's future return. In verse 8, Christ is the righteous judge who will award Paul on that day, that is the day of his appearing, the day of his return. And so to be, to be sober-minded is to understand our situation, to see it clearly, to not be fuzzy about the details of what comes next. Christ is coming. That is our hope, as we will emphasize in a second. If that is not clear in your mind, you will not persevere in your preaching. And next, Paul says, endure suffering. These two go hand in hand. We, we endure suffering as we think clearly about Christ's return. Suffering came before glory for Christ, and suffering comes before glory for God's people. Our lives and our hope become a living embodiment of the gospel as we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. So Paul says, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. Now remember what is important here, Timothy. He's saying, preach the gospel. Embody the gospel, embody the hope of the gospel, and preach the gospel. What is important is that the gospel goes out to all people, men and women, boys and girls, young and old, Republican and Democrat, American and Russian, all people need the evangel, the good news, the gospel, the message of Jesus. Do the work of an evangelist. And if you do all this, Paul says, you will fulfill your ministry. Preach the word all the time, practically, with a sober mind, enduring suffering, proclaiming Christ, and so fulfill your ministry. Don't give up. Don't do it half-heartedly. Don't do the bare minimum to get by. Do your ministry to its fullest. Ministry here is the word for service. Ministry is not a position of status, but a position of servanthood. To become a minister is to become a servant, a servant of God, a servant of Christ, a servant of the gospel, a servant of the church, a servant of the lost. And Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 4.1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. 2 Corinthians 4.5, he says again, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. To become a minister is to become a servant, a minister, a servant, a steward of the gospel. Devote yourself to that, pastors, and so fulfill your ministry. Now, at this point, Paul turns to himself in verses 6 and 7. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And Paul is saying he's, he's being poured out as a sacrificial offering. Paul sees his life of ministry as a life of sacrifice to God for the sake of the church. And that sacrifice is coming to an end, that the time of his departure has come. Now, that could mean different things, but it probably means his impending martyrdom. Paul is getting ready to die for the faith. And it is this that makes Paul's charge to Timothy so urgent 
Now, in, in verse 7, verse 7 is, is not a boast, right? Verse 7, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, this is not Paul putting his confidence in the flesh or putting his confidence in what he had done. Now, Paul doesn't suddenly upend all of his theology. He doesn't suddenly stop trusting in Jesus and start trusting in his accomplishments. But this should squelch all those who think we should be in constant doubt as to our own faithfulness. It should ward off all false humility. Paul is not afraid to say he has completed his task. That's that's not arrogance, it's just honesty. And Christians should not have to get to the end and wonder, well, have I been faithful to my calling? And yet what Paul actually says emphasizes the finality of Paul's ministry. This is the end for Paul. None of us are there. Uh, When you are on your deathbed or facing martyrdom, then you want to be able to say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I have persevered to the end in my calling. Now, the question is, uh, why does Paul mention this here? Uh, to, To say to Timothy, as Paul says many times elsewhere, follow me as I follow Christ. This whole Christian life thing, Timothy, this whole ministry thing, it's possible Rely on the Spirit, seek God's glory, trust in Jesus, and you too can come to the end and say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And so here is your charge, Timothy. Here is your charge, Pastor. Here is your charge, Josue. Preach the word. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Fight the good fight, finish the race, keep the faith. Now, if you're listening, and especially if you are a pastor or if you are considering going into pastoral ministry, you might be a bit scared right now, maybe a little overwhelmed. This is a high and holy calling. This is not easy. It's not simple. The language of fighting the fight and running the race, the language of battle and athletic competition, if nothing else should tell you, this is going to be a challenge. It won't be easy. Paul has exhorted Timothy to persevere. And of course, the million dollar question is, how in the world will he do that? You know, pastors quit ministry every day. Uh, Some statistical research groups say that this is happening more than ever. Some say that's overstated. But regardless, pastors do quit every day. When at least some in the church don't want to hear what you have to say, and with a job description that we have only scratched the surface of, how can you persevere in that calling? Which brings us to our last point. So point one was the challenge of gospel ministry, people with itching ears. Point two, the call of gospel ministry, preach the word. Point three, the hope of gospel ministry, the crown of righteousness. Uh, Look at verse one. Uh, Paul says in verse one, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Paul charges Timothy in light of four realities. God, Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Christ's appearing, that is his future return, and Christ's kingdom. Why does he bring all these things up here in this charge? Why charge Timothy in the presence of God and Christ and by his appearing in his kingdom? 
Well, I think in part, here's the question, and it's especially for pastors, but it really needs to be asked of everyone. We all have a calling from God. So the question is, what's going to get you up in the morning to fulfill your calling? Let me tell you what won't do it, because your job is easy. It's not. We live in a broken world. Work is hard. Pastoral ministry is difficult. How about this? Because your job is fun. Sometimes that's true. I love my job, but sometimes it's not so fun. Sometimes it's just plain hard, right? Emotionally, relationally. And of course, we're talking about Paul here who was repeatedly stoned and beaten and jailed. He didn't get up every day thinking, oh, this is going to be fun. I'm going to go to Corinth next. What shouldn't get you up in the morning is the praise of men. Right? If you're living for the praise of other people, one, it may be there, it may not. And two, if that's what gets you up in the morning, well, pastors, you're back to tickling itching ears. And so you're not going to get up because your job is easy, and you're not going to get up because it's fun, not every day. And you shouldn't get up for the praise of men. And so what's going to get you up in the morning to fulfill your calling? Only if you have a big view of God and Christ and his appearing and his kingdom. And when you struggle to get up in the morning, and there will be days, you've got to remind yourself of the glory of God, of Christ who is to judge the living and the dead, of Christ's imminent return, of Christ's glorious kingdom, and the fullness of that kingdom that will come on the last day. If we look to our subjective feelings or to visible fruitfulness, we will find no firm foundation for a life of ministry. And so Paul says elsewhere in Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on things that are above not on things that are on earth. And Peter puts it in 1 Peter 1.13, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, there's that word again, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What must motivate us in the Christian life and especially therefore in ministry is not short-term gains, not worldly rewards, not the praise of men, not financial gain, but the glory of God, the exaltation of Jesus, his imminent return, and the coming fullness of his glorious reign. If that gets a hold of your heart, nothing will keep you in bed. But that's not all. Paul ends his charge to Timothy like this in verse 8. He says, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let me, let me point out briefly three things about this verse. Uh, first, twice, Christ is mentioned in our passage, verse 1 and verse 8, and both times he is mentioned as judge. Now, this is a bit odd. Christ is the Savior. He came to die for sin, to bring forgiveness, to give the Spirit. But he will come a second time to judge the living and the dead. Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There will come a day of reckoning. That is why preaching the gospel is so important. Only Christ can make that day a day of joy for you and not a day of terror. Judgment day is coming, Paul is saying. And so preach the good news now while you still have time so people won't have to suffer the bad news later. Second, Paul says, there is laid up for him the crown of righteousness. Righteousness. 
Paul is looking for a reward. Uh, Not a reward that he has earned, strictly speaking. We deserve judgment. We are justified, declared righteous by faith, but God rewards our work. How does all that fit together? Well, Calvin put it like this. He said, justification by free grace, which is bestowed on us through faith, is not at variance with the rewarding of works. But on the contrary, those two statements perfectly agree that a man is justified freely through the grace of Christ, and yet that God will render to him the reward of works. For as soon as God has received us into favor, he likewise accepts our works so as even to deign to give them a reward, though it is not due to them. It does not follow that God owes us anything, Calvin says, but that God crowns in us his own gifts. You can earn nothing. God owes you nothing. But God has become our father by grace, and he is pleased to reward those who serve him, whatever their role, whatever their calling. And Paul says specifically, he is looking for the crown of righteousness. This has been taken one of two ways. The crown that is righteousness, as the phrase crown of something often means in scripture, such as crown of life, which means life, or crown of glory, which means glory. But in this case, in this case, Paul is looking forward to the glory that comes with being one who is righteous in Christ. He already is righteous in Christ, but one day that righteousness will adorn him like a crown, not just in the father's eyes. I may not look like much to you now, but one day I will be crowned with righteousness and it will be glorious. And you will too, if you are in Christ. Or this phrase could mean the crown given to the righteous. Calvin actually thinks it means this. Again, he says, God crowns in us his own gifts. God declares us righteous by faith. God makes us holy. God gives us gifts. God enables us by the Spirit to use those gifts. And then God crowns in us his own gifts. Not because he owes us anything, but because he is a tender father who delights to bless his children. And one day he will say to all his children who have served him and lived for him, well done, good and faithful servant. He will reward us with his praise. Whichever way you take it, it it really amounts to the same thing, doesn't it? Glory to those who are righteous in Christ, who have persevered to the end. Paul, at the end of his life, says, I've done it. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. There is laid up for me the crown. I am about to hear, well done from my father. In Acts 20, Paul says he wanted to finish his course. In Philippians 3, Paul says he had not yet obtained this, but now Paul says, my race is done. My crown is ready. And this is meant to be an encouragement, not just to Paul, but to Timothy. Follow me, Timothy, he's saying. Fight your fight, run your race, keep the faith, and you too will receive the crown. Now, this all uh, may seem a little bit odd. Paul sees life as an athletic contest and death as stepping up to the victor's stage. Paul was suffering. He was in prison for the gospel, but now his race is done and his crown is ready. What an odd way of looking at life. Paul was suffering for the gospel, and now he is preparing Timothy for the same kinds of suffering. We hear that and we think, what a morose view of reality. But it wasn't strange, not for Paul, and it wasn't morbid. Paul preached Jesus, crucified and risen. 
the one who suffered and then entered into his glory. And Paul knew that the Christian life, especially for those who proclaim Christ, is to follow the pattern of Christ. We experience trial now in the hope of the resurrection to come. Paul's race was done. His crown was ready. There is a crown ready. And not just for Paul and not just for Timothy, but finally Paul says also for all who have loved his appearing. Is the coming of the righteous judge something you dismiss as a fable, something you fear in terror, or something you long for? Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead. He will judge righteously, which means he will condemn the wicked and reward the righteous. How can we long for that day? Only if we understand the message that Paul preached, that Christ died for our sins in our place, and having paid our debt, he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death in one great movement. And if you believe in him now, your sins will be forgiven. You will be righteous in Christ. And one day Christ will crown in you his own gifts. Is that not reason to love Christ and long for his appearing? Here is the encouragement to persevere in ministry, to persevere in the Christian life. The thought that one day we will see Christ face to face. Seeing the one who loved you to death. Hearing his well done, good and faithful servant. Receiving the crown of righteousness which Christ will give to all who have longed for his appearing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we long for your appearing. We long to see you face to face. We long to hear your well done, good and faithful servant. We pray that you would enable us by your spirit, that you would work that hope so into our heart that you would enable us to persevere in the Christian life, to run our race, to fight the faith, to fight the fight, and to keep the faith until the end. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.